Tonight's reading is taken from Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is God's word. Father, I pray this evening will be, we're so persuaded by 
by the truth of your word that your spirit would make us genuinely believe and cry out, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. For my flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Please, would we believe that more clearly this evening? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we're starting a series tonight uh, for a few weeks. We've hit pause on uh, the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, and we're starting a series tonight um, in the Psalms. We've said praying with passion is uh, really what we've called it, and uh, we'll be here until Easter. Kind of just about uh, looking at some of the the expressive psalms uh, that are contained in the Bible, and um, it's in one sense praying with passion because these are very these are very real and honest prayers that God has recorded for us. It's nothing superficial about these in any sense. We'll see people crying out to God in anger, in depression, in delight, and joyful exuberance, in hurt in anxiety, but raw emotions shouted out to God. Very real. And um, my hope would be that uh, in spending a few, ta- uh, a few weeks looking at these sort of prayers, well, a couple of things really. Uh, the first would be for believers as an encouragement to pray this way, with honesty and reality, that our prayers would move a little bit beyond Oh, dear Lord, I hope you sort out my housing. Dear Lord, I hope you sort out my exam. And to, to really engage and pray how we feel. To be genuinely real and honest before God. Now, there's danger. I don't want to be confused here. I'm not encouraging, encouraging just a sort of 21st century cultural expressiveness that says, well, I feel like I need some me time, so I'm just going to have it and tell everyone about it. I'm feeling a bit angry. I just need to let that out and, uh, and rage at people. Now, that's just... That's immaturity. Um, that's sort of a you know uh, uh, celebrity culture or um, uh, um, a TV culture. Now, what are we talking about here? Is honesty before God, uh, wrestling with God, within the highs and the lows, speaking to Him honestly. The second thing, my, my hope would be, uh, I guess if you're here and not a believer and you're, or you're uh, stay with us for some of these series, just to see the integrity of the Christian faith. Because here are uh, believers really engaging with the real world, not hiding at all in any sense of the imagination. They're genuinely engaging. They're expressing the issues they have. There's no to hide. It's a very real, honest faith. And Psalm 73 then is a great place to start. Because here is a man who is... He's grappling with doubts. He's grappling with doubts. Is this true? We'll see it here. The, uh, here's, uh, here's the psalm. It's, uh, it's a psalm of Asaph, we're told. He, he writes about a, a ten, or, ten or so of the psalms uh, in the book of Psalms. Don't know that much about him, but uh, Asaph is his name. And essentially, it's his testimony. First one tells us where he's going. Surely good is good. Uh, sorry, sorry. So let me start again. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But that's not just a trite statement. It sounds like the sort of thing, you know, you could stand up and say liturgically, surely God is good to Israel, he's good to the pure in heart. He's really wrestled to get to this point. He's been through the mill to be able to say this uh, with honesty. So verse 2, what was going on for him? Verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost slipped 
I had nearly lost my foothold. Now, the metaphor of walking is a very common one in the Bible. The, the believer's life is one of walking. In one sense, it's unspectacular. You just keep going. You just keep going. You, it's not running. It's not making rapid progress. It's just slowly, slowly but surely you keep going. You walk the path of righteousness. But he's saying, I'd slipped. I'd stumbled. You see it a little later on. He's... Um, uh, verse 13, he's thinking, have I done all this? Is this in vain? Verse 21, his heart was grieved, his spirit embittered. He's, he's just about ready to give up, actually. When he says, I slipped, it's not just a, oop, a little slip. It's a, he's stumbling. He's thinking, am I going to keep going as a believer? Or am I just going to pull the ripcord and get out? throw this whole thing in. He's stumbling. Now, before we really jump in, let me just there's a caveat or, or just a general observation on, on this sort of feeling or this sort of attitude of doubts. Most believers have doubts at some time or another. They take different forms. Most believers, you know, is this true? Can I trust the Bible? Is there a God, really? I'm not so sure what's happening when I pray. Is this worth it? I might just jack this in. Most believers at some point in their lives have doubts. And so I take it there, there are some here this evening who, who call themselves Christians, may have been a part of this church for a period of time or, or other churches for a period of time, and you have doubts. And you think, oh, but I can't tell anyone. I mean, this is a sensible church and... And um, people would be flabbergasted if I said, you know what, sometimes I, I just struggle to believe, I don't know what it might be, the resurrection happened, I don't know, God is sovereign, I don't know. We might have doubts in some area of the Christian life. There's, there's inevitably there are some here who have been Christians a while, having doubts on some things. And you know, I can't, what would happen if I told people, they'd, they'd be shocked. <gasps> really? you sure you're a Christian? Well, look, if they're that sort of shocked, they've led a pretty sheltered life. Because most people, most Christians, have doubts at some point in time. So just, well, it's my caveat, by way of introduction, if that's you, church is for you. I mean, if you're here not as a believer, and how, you know, well, I'm not so sure if this Christian faith is true, this is a great place to be because we, we have doubts at periods in our life. We struggle. We, certainty ebbs and flows a little bit. For most of us. The difference here with this man, Asaph, he's just honest. Doesn't pretend. He's very real and very honest with his doubts. And through wrestling with them, engaging with his doubts, he comes through it. And actually, we'll see at the end of the psalm, there's a greater maturity to him. So doubts is what's going on. The particular issue, well, we get in, well, that's what most of the psalm is about. Verse 3. Why was he doubting? Why had he nearly slipped? Verse 3, because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why is he stumbling? Well, I guess you, you could phrase it as injustice in part. It's not the whole story. But essentially, he looks at the world. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good Jewish boy, so he knows the book of Psalms. This is how the book of Psalms works. Psalm 1. God blesses the righteous. Blessed is the man who lives a righteous life. Psalm 2, God's king is reigning 
overall and is in charge of the earth. He knows those things. But he looks around and says, well, hold on a minute, I'm living a pretty decent moral life as a Jew. I'm a righteous man. I'm not being blessed. And you're meant to be reigning, but look at what's going on in the world. This is it's just completely unreasonable. I mean, he looks around, like, like many of us might do, look around and says, you know what, some of the corrupt people do pretty well. They get away with all sorts of things. And actually, here I am, a believer, I look at some people who are not believers and think, their lives are pretty good. Actually, they seem to have a f- far fewer struggles than I do. How? I mean, they're living a pretty debauched life, and yet still, things go well with them. And, well, that's not fair. <laughs> I'm not sure I like that. Why am I bothering to live a Christian life when they're not, and things go better for them? They better, seem to do better at work, and so on and so forth. Anyone relate to that? He's there as a believer, looking around and saying, why am I bothering? When people who are not believers seem to do much better. What's happening to the blessing of the righteous? What's happening to God being ruling over the world and doing good to those who love him? What's happened there? Well, I don't like it. What's the point? That's what's going on. And yet he's honest. It's not just injustice. It's a bit more than that. So verse 3, it's not, I looked around the world and was a bit disappointed by the injustice and wondered intellectually if that was a problem for the existence of God. He said, I envied. I looked around and thought, I want to be them. They're having more fun. They got more money. Their life's more straightforward. I want to be them. He, it's personal. He envied what was going on. Ever feel like that? Let's try and keep it simple. I mean, the simple level, we're going to say there's a problem and there's a solution uh, in the psalm. I mean, it's a bit, you know, we'll break it down a bit more than that. But first of all, then, the problem. What's the problem that really gets him going? Uh, we can break it down like this. Verses 6 to 12. The wicked have carefree lives. Then verses 13 to 14. So why bother? Why bother being godly? What's the point in that? Let's look at the first bit first, then. Verses 6 to 12. The wicked have carefree lives. Now, um, don't load too much into the word wicked. You could equally translate it faithless, possibly unbeliever. So it's not, you know, wicked, you know, sort of evil, Dr. Evil sort of character. It's not just saying, look at Hitler. It's just saying there are, there are people who don't know you, God, and they're doing quite well. It, it could be a little milder than wicked, faithless, unbeliever. It could, could equally be that would be just as good as translating it. So don't get it too clear. And in one sense, what you get in verses 4 to 9 could be a pretty reasonable description of what goes on in much of London or many Londoners. So verses 4 to 5, life is good for them. Verse 4, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they're free from the burdens common to man, they're not plagued by human ills. Life is good for them, verses 4 and 5. So verses 6 and 7, they become proud. Therefore pride is their necklace, they clothe themselves with violence, from their callous hearts comes iniquity, their minds know no limit of evil. So life goes well, so they become proud. So verses 8 and 9, they mock. They scoff and speak with malice in their arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. It's, it's, see, that's progression. 
I'm not as you see, I don't want to be unfair, but the real caricature might be footballers who, you know, their bodies are sleek and they're, they're, they're free from struggles. They earn extraordinary amounts of money, uh, proud and boastful. They get to drive their enormous cars and, um, they, they can say silly things. They can shoot assistants at their, um, uh, you know, sorry, it's carries last night. I really shouldn't knock Chelsea Football Club, but, you know, uh, players like Ashley Cole can shoot the boot boy and do things. Cause, you know, if you have that much sort of wealth and success and freedom from stress, you, you can, it can take you in this position. But it doesn't need to be that extreme. We can see it in the more mundane characters of life. So just at work, in our workplace, the arrogant bloke who tramples on other people, who slightly puts the knife in, when uh, just to the boss and the boss is here and he does really well but he's the one who gets promoted it's just so unfair or uh, or the, the woman who is actually deeply immoral and yet all the men seem to go for her he says, what's that about Are they all daft yes probably but the um <laughs> you know it's it just what is that what's what why are they going for her or, you know, the, you know, just, just one of your friends, you know, and they've got so much more money to spend because, well, they, they pay everything under the counter. It's just, you know, a little, little, well, you know, it'd be a hundred quid, or if you pay cash in hand, fifty quid, or oh, pay cash in hand then. And you think, oh, I can't really do that as a believer. That's not what it's appropriate. And so, oh, for goodness sake, they're living immorally, you know, they've got more money to spend because they don't pay their taxes appropriately. They've got more time on their hands because they don't sort of bother going to church and they don't bother caring for other people got more money got more time they're doing all right oh i like it well that's what i say things i don't like it and others look on and approve this sort of slightly naughty or wicked lifestyle depends there's a spectrum of course so um at verse 10 others look on and approve now you need to explain this is sort of a hebrew idiom but let me uh, explain it. Verse 10. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. That is just an idiom for approval. It's not that, <laughs> not that people go, oh, look at that wicked person. He's doing very well. I'll go and drink a swimming pool. I'll drink waters in abundance. It's, they, they look on the immoral, I don't know, the immoral footballer. Do you know, I read this thing in the paper this week. Uh, 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 five to 16 year olds, so a fairly broad spectrum, their top three ambitions. To be a pop star. To be a footballer, to be an actor. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, how many are actually going to make it? But those are sort of the, the, the key role models for the younger people. Look at them and say, not they don't drink up a swimming pool, they say, oh, I, I approve. I approve. It's just an idiom, a metaphor for I approve of what they're doing. So Asaph looks on and thinks, these people, they're behaving immorally. They've got more money than me, more time than me, they're more successful than me. Everyone looks on and says, oh, look at them, they're the great, they're the powerful in society. What am I doing? What's the point? That's what he says, verse, uh, verses uh, 13 to 14. Why bother? Why bother being pure in heart? Oh, sorry, just before that, verse 11, they're saying, well, how can God know? There's no God. So if there's no God, do what you want, can't you? No God, so do what you want. Uh, this was my um, uh, a relative recently. A relative the, um, uh, put in a fraudulent insurance claim said that their, uh, all the carpets in their house were ruined because there'd been a flood in the bathroom and it was the same carpet throughout and they couldn't get a match so the insurance company would have to pay for new carpets throughout the whole house and, uh, and they got this through 
And they were boasting about this to me. <laughs> I got thousands of pounds worth of carpets uh, for free. Uh, terrific, isn't it? It's slightly the wrong person to say that to. But I said, the, um, I said do, you, do you have no qualms about that at all? I mean, that is stealing, isn't it? No, no, no. I mean, it's innocent crime. No one gets hurt. You know, it's just the insurance company. Well, hold on a minute. Those are my insurance premiums going up. No, which company are you with? No, I'm with a different company. It doesn't affect you. No, you're missing the point slightly. It's just, oh, that's what you do, doesn't it? And people just approve and you look at it and think, oh. And they're proud and they boast. Well, there's no God. What are you talking about? I don't have to give an account for any of these things. I do what I want. So Asaph looks at all this going on in his world. He looks around our world and says, well, the wicked are doing pretty good. I'm not doing so well. Why am I bothering to be pure in heart? Verses 13 and 14. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. And what am I doing? I'm getting passed over at work uh, because I'm honest. I pay more tax because I don't pay under the counter. I'm living the Christian life, it seems to me, is a waste of time. What's the point of following God when they have easier lives? But you see, interesting verse 14 it is, it is affecting him. So verse 14, I have been plagued. I, we don't know how, but personally, he's losing out in some way. Now, step back slightly. Why is Asaph stumbling? Why is this man stumbling? Why is he doubting whether it's true, the biblical life, the Christian life, if you put it that way? Why is he doubting? Well, in one sense, there's an, there's an intellectual doubt. There's injustice in the world. The wicked seem to prosper, and the righteous do not. That's a sort of intellectual doubt. But there's also subjective, uh, an existential doubt. It affects him. I'm losing out. I am suffering. I am envious. Do you see, it's a mixture. Objectively, there's a problem in the world, injustice. But subjectively, it happens to him. And doubt works that way. It's not just uh, the doubt in the philosophy study. It's the doubt in the painful street of life as well. Doubt normally works that way. It's not just an abstract, well, I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure intellectually of the case that you can demonstrate that God exists. It's not. It's personal as well. It's certainly what's going on for Asaph here. So I don't know, it could be, um, you, have, you look around the world today and say, injustice in Libya, I don't like that. Look at what Gaddafi's doing. That is unjust and unfair. And that's a problem. How does God allow that to happen in the world? Intellectually, that's a problem for me. Yeah, okay, and that may be a serious issue or doubt you might have. But you bash your, so no, this is not right, but you get defrauded for about a hundred pounds Someone, I don't know, clones your card and you lose out and the bank won't pay you back. And that makes, oh, that's just, that's just much more annoying. That's much more unfair because it happens to me. I mean, one says, it's absurd. People dying, I've lost a hundred pounds. But if it happens to me, it just becomes a lot more unreasonable and, and deeply irritating. Do you see how doubt works? It's not just the abstract out there, the academic issues. No one, well, that's not fair. Not many people, 
give up on the Christian faith or reject the Christian faith just for intellectual doubts. It's when those intellectual doubts come home. So not many people really say, I can't be a Christian because of suffering in the world. But people will say, I can't become a Christian but because when I was age five, my mother died. And I don't get that. That's what happened. And doubts happen that way. I can think over the last few years, two people who have uh, ended up having conversations with two people who have said, I am, I'm not sure you can trust the Bible really. I mean, can't we just read it metaphorically? I mean, there's obviously truth in it. But to take it literally seems a, a, a bit strong, a bit over the top. Two people. And you probe and push a little bit. And actually the issue, but you get to it, one, one's just started an adulterous affair. And uh, the other uh, wanted to marry a, a non-Christian. And, well, the Bible says you probably shouldn't, but, you know, really, do you have to take it seriously? See, their doubts really were brought on by a presenting issue for them. And that's what happens normally. That's the, the case for Asaph. Yes, there's injustice in the world, but hold on a minute, I'm suffering. It happens to me. There's a mixture of the objective and subjective. That's the way that doubts work. That's why he was slipping. That's why he was envious. Okay, that's the problem. Solution. How does that work? The solution, well, two things. Uh, go to the sanctuary, verses 15 and 20, and have your heart renewed. First thing, go to the sanctuary. That obviously is not a reference to, I'm not encouraging you to go and spend money on a spa day in Covent Garden and buy all sorts of... That may well be of use to you. I have once in my life uh, had a massage and basically I felt like I was beaten up by a six foot five bloke for an hour. But if that works for you, if you like that sort of thing, good. The sanctuary of God, not... Okay, that's what we're talking about. Verse 17 is the sanctuary of God. Go to the sanctuary. Actually, the change starts a little bit before that. You see in verse 15, um, just before, if I had said I'll speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. Actually, the change begins for Asaph when he stops just being self-absorbed. I'm losing out. I don't like it. Other people are prosperous. I'm not. I don't like that. He starts to change when he looks up and says, well, I need to be careful how I say this because it might upset other people. And that starts the process, not just being self-absorbed, but looking out, that, that starts it. Still, verse 16, he says, oh, I don't know. I tried to understand all this. It was completely oppressive to me. I didn't know what to think. The change comes, verse 17. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood the final destiny of the wicked. Then I understood a day of reckoning is coming. That's the key turning point in the psalm that changes everything. Now, the intriguing thing is, what happened in the sanctuary? We don't know. He goes into the sanctuary. Oh, I don't know what to make of all this. I'm envious. I, this is the world's unjust. He comes out and says, God is great. What's happened in the sanctuary? What's happened? We don't know. <laughs> it's very striking. And I think, I'm not sure about this, I think that's deliberate. Because there's no one size fits all solution to doubts that people might have. Different doubts don't, there's no formula. Have doubts, insert here, come out the other end, ta-da, all is well. It doesn't, 
I think that's what's going on. But I can tell you, at least two things would have happened when he went to the sanctuary. The first is he'd have heard the word of God read. He'd have heard the scriptures read. That certainly would have happened. He'd have heard the word of God proclaiming truth. The second thing that would have happened, he'd have worshipped with God's people. He'd have met with God, and, and um, presuming this is one of the, the four great festivals of the year, he's gone up to the sanctuary, uh, gone up to the, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, thousands of other people there, and he's engaged in singing and praising God with lots of other people around. And can I say, I think both of those are very important if you're struggling with doubts. You need the word of God, and you need other believers to help you look to God. You need both. Both very important in that case. Sometimes people recoil against that. They'll say, I'm struggling at the moment in the Christian life, and I feel a fraud if I go to church. Or, I'm considering Christian things, but I can't go to church yet, because I'm not, you know, I can't praise God. That would just be false and, and, and untrue. That, that's nonsense. Can I just say, it's, that's unfair. If you're struggling with doubts, Listen to God. It's no good saying, I've got doubts, I've got doubts, I've got doubts. I'm going to shut myself off from God and just mellow, wallow in my doubts. If you've got doubts, go to him. Ask him. Say, Lord, I've got doubts. But for goodness sake, listen to him speak. And meet with his people who can help you with your doubts. And give objective answers and subjectively come and uh, encourage you. You need to do that. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, 25 years ago, I don't know, something like that. No, not quite. But when I be- not long after I became a Christian, I, um, I don't, not long after, I had a period of real doubts of several days. What have I done? This is bonkers. What do I, I'm now speaking to a God. Hello. And I had a real, hello. You know, this, really? What am I doing? And for days this went on. I vividly remember one night going to a local park and walking around the lake and saying, God, are you there? Am I mad, or are you there? I don't know what I'm doing. Can you persuade me that you're there if you're there? And bizarrely, all of a sudden, this massive dog came bounding over to me and started licking my face. Oops. And, uh, you know, I was a very young Christian at the time and thought, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, is there anything in the Bible about God licking faces? Is that, is that what he does? I don't know. I don't know what I did. I mean, hopeless. I mean, that's neither here nor there. It was just a dog at night who was affectionate. <laughs> but you can sometimes, sometimes people are a bit like that. I'm having doubts. What do I do? Lord, send me a licking dog. I mean, you don't actually say that. Send me something. Give me, give me something. A lightning bolt in the snow. What are you talking about? Go, go to the temple. Go to the sanctuary. Go and hear God's word. Read it. And meet with God's people who can help you with your doubts. Of course, that's what happens when you go to the sanctuary, when you meet with God's people. So I'm assuming that's what went on. And what happens when he does? Well, he gets perspective. Verse 17. Asaph encountered his answer. I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Understood, maybe not be the best. Considered their destiny. It's not that um, he's been a believer for years and uh, wanders into the temple, hears something, speaks to people. Oh, you know what? I never realized that actually there's a day of judgment. And if you believe in 
God, that's okay, he'll take you to be with him, and if you don't, you'll get rejected. Never knew that. No, he knew that, but he, he understood it, he considered it, he was changed by that. He believed more deeply that truth. And what is it? Well, uh, verses 18 to 20. You see, back in verse 2, his feet were slipping. Now he realizes, verse 18, those who don't know you, the wicked, you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one's awake, so when you arise, O Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. Wow terrified. God will treat people who don't know him with contempt. Despise. And now he's persuaded a, a day of reckoning is coming. Okay. I don't see a perfectly just world here and now. Okay. But I know that's coming. I know that's coming. And that changes the clear knowledge that injustice and the wicked will be Verse 19, swept away. In the book of Exodus, uh, um, book of Exodus, the story of the, uh, the Israelites coming out of uh, Egypt, taken to the promised land. The uh, chapter 14, they've escaped. So chapter 12 is the Passover, and uh, they escape from Egypt, and they're uh, going away slowly, slowly, traveling to the promised land. All of a sudden, Pharaoh says, hold on a minute, stuff this, bring them back. And Pharaoh launches his army, his many charioteers, and so they're being chased. You get to chapter 14, and the Israelites can see the smoke coming, because all the horses are generating the smoke. And they say, what's the, what's the point, Moses, what's the point of this? Brilliant. So you brought us out of Israel, sorry, you brought us out of Egypt to die. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well done, Moses. What's the point of that? And of course, the, uh, uh, God says, Moses, Moses says to God, uh, <laughs> and he parts the Red Sea, the Israelites go through, and they're on the other side. And of course the Egyptians start to come through. And then the waters cave in on them, and they are swept away. Verse 19, they are completely swept away by terrors. I don't know if you ever think about that. Have you ever seen the cartoon, The Prince of Egypt? It's very, very good, very vivid at portraying this as the... Um, the Egyptians are just stood on the shoreline in silence, looking at the fact that every, everyone they were intimidated by, those who had mistreated them, those they'd envied, swept away. And at that point, they're thinking, pretty please, I'm a believer. See, the day of reckoning changes everything. Changes everything. Very sobering truth for Asa. I entered the sanctuary, I realized, oh, I'm a believer who knows you, Lord. I'll, I'll be with you forever. And these people who I'm envious of at the moment, they'll be swept away. Just swept away in a torrent of water. It changes everything that perspective. His lens just widens out. I'm not just going to look at this year and the injustice of this year. I'm going to look out for what's happened or what will happen in eternity. Oh, I'm so thrilled to know you. I'm not going to envy the people around me. I'm thrilled by that. 
Asaph has a new confidence then. Go to the sanctuary. Go to the sanctuary. And what he realizes there, he's encouraged by God's word and uh, meeting with God's people. And he realizes the day of reckoning is coming. And I want to be on God's side. And that changes him. So verses 18 to 20, they're, they're God's activity. 21 to 26, certainly almost to the end. Asaph has changed. His heart has been renewed. Verses 21 to 26. His heart has been renewed. Now, three little quick practical things to learn from these verses as we finish uh, in the doubts. Three little things, I'd say. Distrust your doubts. Trust God's presence. Trust God's worth. Very quickly, very briefly. First then, verses 21 to 22. Distrust your doubts. Verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was, a sense, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He says, look, when I was just self-focused, thinking this is not fair, when I was subjectively involved in injustice and it affected me, I couldn't see clearly. I was thinking like a rhino. You know, rhino gets up momentum, big beast, tiny brain, tiny brain. That's how I was thinking. I was just, this is not fair, this is not fair. And I gathered up a bit of momentum thinking this is not fair. And I was just charging at the issue saying, this is unjust, I don't like it. Not thinking. Pea brain, very small. Distrust your doubts. If they're prompted by an issue in your life, I want that, I'm not getting it. It's not fair when I look at them and the job they've got, the money they've got, the spouse they've got. It's not fair that they've got them and I've not. Distrust your doubts if they're caused by those things. Distrust them. Think to yourself, I'm a rhino. I am a brute beast. Very strong, very stupid. Distrust your doubts. Why am I thinking like a rhino? Second little thing, trust God's presence. Verses 23 and 24. I was a brute beast and yet I'm always with, you, always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. You're always with me. God doesn't let us go, ever. If you're a believer, he will not let you go. Actually, there's two lovely things here. He is with us, if you're, or with you if you're a believer, and he is upholding you with his hand. It's like the lovely picture of, uh, if you ever see it in a park of a, of a weekend, Saturday, Sunday afternoon, and there'll be a toddler walking along a log or um, some sort of bench. And if it's a toddler, has got a whopping nappy on, so they all walk like this, because that's how you walk if you've got a nappy. And they're walking on there, they're sort of slightly wobbly-legged, and the dad is holding the right hand with the child and actually keeping the child on the log. And the child gets to the end, and uh, it's quite an old toddler, so they say, I did it. And you think, yeah, kind of. Um, kind of. You wouldn't have done it without Daddy. I, mean, I, don't know how, I wouldn't be able to do it in a nappy like that. The, um, of course, God is holding your right hand. It's a very lovely picture, isn't it? Verse 23. I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. I don't know if that's helpful for you. You're envious of something. You look around and that's not fair. I'm not so sure what God is doing. Are you there? He's holding your right hand. You're not going to feel it, of course. You won't put it out. 
might mentally be helpful to you. I know you're holding my hand. That is a promise you've made. It's always trust God's presence. Last thing, trust God's worth. Verses 25 and 26. Back in verse 9, the, uh, the wicked, their mouths lay claim to heaven and to earth. Here Asaph says, you're all I need in heaven and earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Of course, that had happened. I mean, the heart is pretty prominent in the psalm. His heart had failed. That is precisely what had happened. So, uh, there are many references, but verse 13, what's the point of keeping my heart pure? Verse 21, my heart was grieved. Uh, Verse 26, my heart had failed. It had failed. But you, you've held on to me. You're all I need. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And when everything else is stripped away, when your life is in the pits, I've got God. He is with me. Reference to this before. Many of you know. Uh, years ago, um, uh, when a son was born, he was tried to come at 24 weeks. My wife, Kerry, was in hospital for two months until 32 weeks. He was premature, another five weeks. And we just were out of action for three months. It was rubbish. We were just hospital, just hospital bound for three months. Stressful, miserable, rubbish time. And in that time, you know, if I'm honest, we lost loads of friends. Because um, we kind of moved, or I moved, and the Two of them were in hospital. Uh, we kind of moved, and so we changed the dress. And some people we lost because of that. And also a number of people just never came or even phoned. And you realize, you know what? Uh, you're not really our good friends, are you? But went through that process, what we realized, the people who came and visited, you know, some here came and visited repeatedly, repeatedly. It was pretty boring being in hospital for that period of time. People who came and visited and sent in, those were precious friends, precious friends. Now, more generally in life, when you're in the pits and you lose things, when your life is going wrong, I still have God. My heart may fail. At some point in our lives, our flesh will fail. We'll get sick and we'll move towards death. My flesh and my heart may fail. They will fail. But God, God is my strength and my portion forever. He'll take us through the flood. He'll take us through to glory. He will never fail you. He will never let you down. You see what he's saying? Everything else will fail at some point. Everything will fail. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. When I realize that they'll all fail, eventually, everything will go. What will I take with me into my coffin? You, Lord. That is it. Nothing else. Everything will fail. But you. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And you'll take me to be with you in glory. And the wicked don't have that. Why am I envying them? Why am I envying them? Asaph has his doubts. He has his doubts. What do you do with your doubts? Bring them to the sanctuary. They'll be because of the mixture of objective and subjective issues. What's going on in your life will really be the cause of doubts. Let's be honest. That's how it works. Go to the sanctuary. You need to meet God's word. You need to meet God's people. You need to praise him. You need to do all those things. And this particular issue, envying. Envying people who don't know God, don't care, mock you for believing in God if that's you. 
when the flood comes, it changes everything. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. And as one commentator put it very well, this is my last sentence, very well, as I, I thought this was good. Don't just focus on what God can do for you, save you for eternity. Dwell also on what he can be for you. What he can be for you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you will not. God is my strength and my portion forever. He will never let you down. He can be a rock of certainty. He can be a source of joy. And you need both of those in your doubts. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we pray that uh, we'd be a church where we can be honest with our doubts. Whether we're uh, on the outside looking in, not yet Christians, whether we've been Christians for years and are just embarrassed, can I tell someone? Yes, we can. We want to be, Father, we want to be that sort of church where people can express their doubts. And for this particular doubt that Asaph faced, and surely many of us do, of looking around the world and saying it's not fair. It's not fair. I'm a believer and I seem to have a lot less than people who mock God and their lives go so well. Would we remember ultimately that a day is coming when we'll be thrilled to know you. A day of reckoning is coming. A flood is coming. We will be thrilled to know you. And while we're waiting, would we look upon you and recognize my heart and my flesh may fail. They will fail, but you are a strength and a portion that will never do so. You will last forever. Would we trust what you can do for us? Would we delight in what you can be for us? And therefore have confidence as we live this life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.